Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. I think that sometimes we, we have this idea of God maybe that, that I can get in my own mind and where he's this certain way and, and if he wants it, well then he'll, he'll show me. And, and, I, and I believe that to an extent, but I also believe that there's something about when we look to him and say, okay God, I, I want to do this. I just need you to tell me to do it. That the, the faith that we put out there, the, the fact that our heart is stirred when we see Him, when we experience Him, that, that makes a demand on Him and causes Him to respond. And He says, okay, it's me, come. I think Peter could have sat in the boat waiting for Jesus to tell Him to come, and He would have not said, come to me. And Peter would have never stepped out of the boat and walked on the water had he not looked at the Lord and put the demand on Him and said, if that's you, God, if that's you, tell me to come. And if our God is... If our God would never have a donkey speak, if our God would never tell someone to step out onto water that's physically impossible to walk on, if the God that we've created in our minds would never spit, make mud, put it in someone's eyes and their eyes be opened, if He's no longer that God anymore, then then maybe we've reduced him down to something or someone that just kind of helps us through our day. Makes life a little easier. Gives us someone to talk to when things are bad. He's not, that's, sure he does that, but that's not all he is. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the God of miracles. He's the God who is and who was and who is to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who made Balaam's donkey speak to him is the God who lives and breathes and moves inside of you in His Spirit. And if we forget that, then we'll be reduced down to sitting in a boat, watching other people step onto water. And if we're not careful, we'll think of so many reasons why they shouldn't step onto the water. Why God would never or why God doesn't because we're sitting in a boat and we're watching other people step out. And I just, I honestly believe that today, like right now, God wants to do something in our hearts just to recalibrate. Not that this is, not this emotional response or anything like that, but just the thing of saying, listen, who do you think that I am? Because that matters. He asked Peter, he said, Peter, who do men say I am? Some say you're a good man, a teacher, a prophet, Elijah. Some say you're this, that. But Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. The Son of the living God. Jesus gets excited and responds to him. Because it matters who you say that he is. Who he is doesn't change, but who I believe that he is changes what I believe, and it changes me. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the unchanging one. But what I believe can change the way that I believe that he is, and and can change the way that I respond, the way I see him, and the way that I live. And I think it's so important, guys, that that we understand that, that, yeah, he's... He's the helper. He's the comforter. He's all those things. But He's the God who speaks to storms and they instantly go calm and then looks at people and says, where's your faith? 
<laughs> say, man, I'm so glad I was here with you guys because that's what I want to do for the rest of your lives. I want to be with you and every single time there's a storm, I want you to be terrified and come find me and wake me up and drag me out and wait for me to do something. He looks at them and he says, oh, you have little faith. How long must I be with you? How long must I serve? What's he saying? He's saying, you guys, I'm not going to be here forever. You have to understand that the things that I do, I came to be an example to you so that you can do them. That's what he's saying. It's what he's still saying. I'm not a history lesson to be studied and admired as much as I am a person to know and understand and imitate. Because he said, as the Father sends me into the world, so I also send you. That's Jesus. He said, if anyone believes in me, the things I do, he'll do, and greater things because I go to the Father. We get so worked up worrying about what the greater things are that we forget the fact that he said, the things I do, you'll do. We can have discussions about what the greater things are when we start actually walking in the things that he did that we understand, that we saw. This, not, this isn't to condemn us. This is to say, guys, there's so much more out there. There's, there's got to be more. He can't just be a daily devotional self-help to get me through my day. He has to be my reason for living. He's not safe. But he's good. He's very, very good. If, if our lives become safe, if our lives become explainable, if our lives never cause anyone to question. You know, it's said that they could see that these men had been with Jesus. They marveled that they were unlearned men, but they could see that they'd been with Jesus because of the boldness, because of the way that they acted, because of the way that they lived. If nobody ever can see that, my, that I've been with Jesus because of my life, not my, just my words, but my life, if my life is not a challenge to people, if my life is not a mystery to people, if my life is easily explained by people who would claim that there is no God, then my life does not look like the life that I've been called to. We're called to be a sign and a wonder to a world that doesn't know Him. He's the God who makes donkeys speak. Think about Just let that wreck your idea of what it is for Him to be God. He speaks through a donkey. Like, that's not a, like a, 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 there wasn't like a metaphorical thing, like, well, you know, God could speak through a donkey. No, he, he spoke through a donkey. A donkey looked at a man, opened its mouth, and spoke to him. God, I just, I pray that we would see you for who you are, God. That you would open our eyes, God. That you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. That we would never lose sight of the fact that you are the God of miracles. That you're the God whose, whose very words calm a raging sea. You're the God that said, Moses, take your staff and throw it on the ground and watch what I do with it and turn it into a serpent. You really did these things. They're not pictures and symbols. They're actual things that you did, God. God, pray that we just would never lose sight of that and that we would live our lives with a greater expectation of seeing you move through us.
Not for the sake of being weird, but for the sake of being like you. So that people would see and know and believe you really are God. We give you praise. We give you thanks, God. We give you honor and glory. We just ask that you would come in and destroy any ideas that we've built about you that are based on anything other than who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Because he spoke through a donkey. Like, sometimes I read through the Bible and I see things and I, I'm like, oh, I forgot that you're like that. Like, if we're not careful, sometimes we'll forget that he really is like that. And we'll build an idea of what he's like that's based on what we would want him to be. We make this tamed down version of God that would never do a lot of the things that the God that we read about would do. Or we write off all that stuff for, well, that was for a time that was. Or if it's a promise, it's for a time to come. But none of that stuff is for the day that we live in. I really believe that. I believe that Peter could have sat in that boat all night. And Jesus never would have called him out onto the water had he not opened his mouth and spoke and put a challenge and an expectation on Jesus. And I, I was thinking about the other day that there's, there's, there's these times where, where people, well, we should take up our offering, because once I get started on this, I'm not going to stop. I'm not. I don't want to get that done that way. People have to leave. They can give before they get to go. Um, so we'll, just, we'll, we'll take up our offering right now. Um, just hold, whatever it is that you're going to give, get it out and put it in your hand. We don't do this all the time. It's not a... It's not a routine for us or a ritual for us, but I feel like we should do that this morning. Just get it out and put it in your hand. If it's a check, check. If you're giving online, grab your phone, whatever it is. Anything, that, whatever it is that you were going to give, just get it out, put it in your hand. Um, if you already gave, just, just, just imagine it in your hand. And, and just hold your hands out before the Lord. And just open your hands. It's okay to do that. Like, it's okay. It's not weird, like... You went to school and the teacher said, put your head down. You put your head down, right? So you're in church and someone's asking you to open your hands. It's not that big a deal. It's not a big a stretch. Um, and, and, and because I want you to actually just, just envision this, that, that God, I live my life with my hands open before you. That I've trusted you with the worst, God. I've trusted you with my worst. I gave you what I consider to be my worst, my sin, my shame, my guilt, everything that I was not created for, and you took it and you made it beautiful. And God, I just want to live with my hands open holding nothing back from you. I don't only want to give you the things that I don't want. God, I want to give you everything, all of me. And God, in doing this, in this position, you are so free to take everything that you want, but I'm also free to receive everything that you have. I hold on to nothing so tightly that it keeps me from receiving the thing that you want to give. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, that's really the best way to live. 
You know, we can try to grip and hold on to things, and the crazy thing is, is we could have our hands so locked, so tight around something, holding on to it, that, that no one can take it from us, but in doing that, we've also made sure that no one can give anything to us, and we've closed ourselves off from receiving, and sometimes God will, will kind of, you know, poke on our fingers and kind of work His way in there, and then sometimes God will just say, have it your way. Hold on to that if you want. I won't force you. I'll be here waiting, and the minute that you open your hand to release, then I'll put in what I wanted to put in, but I'm not going to force you. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm uh, 103 while they're passing the buckets. We'll... This was a message we started a couple weeks ago, and then Dylan spoke last week. He did an awesome job. He really did. Um, and he brought a really, really good word uh, just about uh, the threshing floor and about God actually bringing us to a place where he wants to strip things away because there's value there, because there's something of value that needs the things that are, not, that are worthless to be stripped away so that the thing of value can be used. And if you weren't here last week, um, I encourage you to look it up. You can catch it on iTunes or on the website, on the media page. Um, but we're going to finish up the second half of this, of this, uh, of this message. And it, uh, it's, it's David. He's in a place where... Um, at this time is, is a time where he, he's not sitting on the throne yet. The promises that God gave him have not come to be in his life yet. He has all these promises. He's anointed the king. He's actually God's anointed. And yet he's being hounded. He's being chased. He's being uh, persecuted. And all of it is unfair and unjust. And he is deserving of none of it. He's done nothing but serve the king who is trying to kill him. Just... Remember that in your life, that, that sometimes people are persecuting you for nothing that you've done wrong, but it's because there's something in your life that terrifies them, or that irritates them, or that frustrates them, or because the way that you live confronts the way that they live, and it has nothing to do with you not being who God's called you to be. David was following exactly what God had for him, doing exactly what God called him to do, and yet Saul hated him, not because of who David wasn't, but because in David, Saul saw everything that he was not. And he couldn't believe that he could be the man that David was. Even though he had the same anointing from the same prophet to the same position, yet he never in his mind could conceive and believe that he really was who God said that he was. And so when he saw David, a pure man after God's own heart, he saw in David everything he wasn't. And rather than just humbling himself and admitting that, he sought to destroy the one who made him feel that way. So don't be surprised when your life's a conviction to people. Don't take it personal. Don't take the bait. Don't make it about you. It's not about you. It's never about you. It's always about them. That's why Jesus could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If we live that way and we remember that, we won't take things personally. And we won't live our lives constantly in reaction to what other people were doing, but we'll live our lives in response to what the Father has done. That's how Jesus called us to live. You were never meant to live your life in total response to the people around you and what they're doing or not doing. But so here's David. But here's the other thing too, I think that, that God values is it's okay to be honest before the Lord. That doesn't mean put on a fake face and say, oh no, that's great. I, I love that they're doing that. It's fi- I'm fine. No, really, I'm fine. It's okay to say, you know what, that, 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 I don't like that. I don't. I wish they wouldn't do that. 
not because me, I'm going to be okay. I understand that. I'm actually okay. I'm born again. The Spirit of God lives inside of me. He's my encouragement. I live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of the Father. I'm living for Him and by Him and through Him. But if they knew who they were, if they could see who they were, they would never respond that way. They would never treat me that way. And it must be horrible to live in a place where you're so insecure and so hurt. And you don't say this to the people. That won't be well received. Because people that are insecure and hurt don't want to hear from you that they're insecure and hurt. Let it be from the Father. Let our prayers be the thing that they're helpless against, not our words. But when we're alone in our quiet time, it's okay to just pour out our heart before God. God, I, they're persecuting me. God, they just this person just will not let me be. They will not be okay. They cannot be okay with who I am. God, they unjustly treat me. God, they, they say things about me that aren't true. And Father, I just want them to be so changed by you, God, that they could never be in a place where they would want to do that. But it's not for our sake because then it becomes a selfish prayer. Then it becomes, God, I'm not okay until they change. Would you change them so that I can be okay? And God's response to that prayer every single time is, I changed you so that you could be okay. I changed you so that you could be okay no matter what you face. It's them that are in trouble. They're the ones with the problem. If we can see that, then we won't take this stuff personally. So this is David. And he finds himself in one of those places where he's being just unjustly persecuted. He's, he's not living in the promise that God spoke over his life. So many times between the promise and the actuation of it, there's this, there's this space. And a lot of times, we, we want God to continue to speak to us and encourage us. But sometimes God's just quiet because He believes that the word He gave is enough. He's so confident that His Word will not return to Him void without accomplishing that which He sent it forth to do, that sometimes He just speaks a word and then He trusts that that Word is enough and if we will actually believe that Word, that it will sustain us. So He makes the problem, promise to Abraham. Years and years go by. Nothing's happening. Sarah's womb is getting older. Abraham's growing older. Nothing's happening. You would think that God would come along and sustain him with a word and say, hey, I, I see that thing that you're about to do. That's not what I want. But he trusts his word. He anoints David king. He says, my anointing is upon you. You will lead my people. I will establish you upon your throne. And then he leaves him be and lets him serve his brother, serve his dad, be chased by a king, trusting that the word he spoke over him is enough to sustain. If you think that you need a new word, but the word that God gave you to begin with hasn't come to pass, you don't just go back to the word that he already spoke and believe that. Rather than waiting for a new word. And so, because that takes faith and that's what pleases God. Without faith it's impossible to please him. That must mean that with faith it is actually possible to please him. He's not in heaven not wanting to be pleased. That's why he gave you faith. To every man has been given a measure of faith. Why? Because he really wants you to please him. All right. You guys awake? All right. I'm just making sure. I know it's Labor Day. It's a holiday weekend. So David finds himself in one of those places. And, and so this is where that comes from. And he starts out. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And I'm not going to go through all of this over again. We're going to get down into to verse 6 because that's where we kind of left off. But but just a, a quick run through. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. He's commanding Himself to bless the Lord. 
We, we always think, well, if it's real, then I won't have to actually do anything. It'll just be a response. That's not true. Sometimes you have to actually set your mind on what is true because what you see around you keeps you from actually responding to it and you're making a choice. It's okay if sometimes my worship comes from choosing to worship Him rather than a feeling and an emotion that I have. That's not faking it. Faking it would be to ignore what he spoke and make what I see around me the thing that controls the way that I respond and the way that I worship. That would be about the most fake thing that I could ever do because I'm denying his reality for the reality that I see. And there's a greater truth a lot of times. And if I focus my mind on it, it's not fake it. It's saying I'm going to choose right now to set my mind on things that, I, that are unseen because what is unseen is eternal, but what is seen is temporary. So God, right now in this moment, not as a fake, but because I'm choosing this. And so he's commanding his soul, bless the Lord, oh my soul, all that's within me, bless his holy name. There's this pause. And I just, like we talked about the other week, in that moment, I just can imagine David waiting and there's no response. It's like, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that's within me, praise his name. And nothing's happening. You ever been there where you know that you should be praising Him? Where you know that you're blessed beyond the current circumstance that you're seeing? Where you know there's a greater truth? Where, you are, where you're wanting to do so? You ever been in that place where it's like, I know truth, but right now, I'm not responding as if I do. I'm going to be okay, but I know that in this moment, there's something I'm not seeing or something that I'm not believing. And so it's, it's okay to have those moments. It is okay. You're not a robot. It's okay if sometimes you have to tell yourself the truth over and over again. Preach the gospel to yourself more than you do other people. Why? Because you can only give away what you have because freely you receive, freely you give. If you would remind yourself of the gospel constantly, then you would constantly have something to give to other people. But if you ever lose sight of the gospel for yourself, you'll for surely lose sight of it for other people. Because if I don't believe it's true for me, I'm going to have a hard time telling you it's true for you. But in that moment, there's no response, I feel like. And so, so he tries again. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget none of his benefits. So he says, listen, if you're not going to bless him in this moment, all that's within me, my soul, my heart, my mind, my spirit, my, my heart, my mind, my soul, my emotions, my will, the things that we choose. If you won't bless him just because I'm telling you that, then I'm going to give you a reason to. So now he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And that's not enough either. So he just starts in with remembering all the things that God's done. Sometimes remembering is the greatest thing that you can do. When Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward towards the high mark of the calling, he's not talking about forgetting the good things that God's done because there's another command where he says, remember all the things I taught you. So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm forgetting anything that lies behind me that would keep me from believing everything that lies ahead of me. That's where we have to realize that our memory can either serve us or it can haunt us. And the, what the, and, and the role that it fills is chose by us. What do we meditate on, think on, believe on? Whatever things are true, honest, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise, of good report, meditate on these things. Why does he tell you that? Because you get to choose what things you meditate on and think about. You get to choose which memories you allow to have a place and which ones you allow to shape the way that you look forward towards the future. Because everything you believe about what's coming comes from everything that you've already known and understood and believed. And you get to choose what it is that you allow to shape your, your, what you see lying ahead. That's what Paul's talking about when he says forgetting what lies behind. He's saying 
anything that would keep me from believing all that he spoke over my life. I let that fall away. I don't give it any time. I don't give it any space. I don't meditate on it. It can't make it through that filter. It's not excellent and worthy of praise. Just think about how many things in the course of the day we think about that aren't worthy of praise. Why is it that like that's a lofty goal, but like don't kill is a rule? Why is it we treat some things in the Bible as like this, man, wouldn't that be nice? And some things as like, no, that's a command. Because the same spirit that, wrote, that spoke to Moses, the same God that spoke to Moses and had him write that command, spoke through Paul and said, meditate on these things. And he gives us a list. If it can't make it through that filter, it does not belong in your head. That's a safeguard and a filter. Excellent, worthy of If it's true, that doesn't mean if the world would say it's true, it means there's truth, there's God, there's the Word who is truth. Jesus is the truth. Does, would Jesus agree with that? Well, you know, that person's hopeless. They're just never going to get it. They've given, I've given them so many chances. I have tried so hard, and I have forgave them over and over and over again. And every time I do, they tell me they're never going to do it again. And every time that they do, they say that they're liars because every time they've said that, they've gone back and they've done it again, and I'm just done with them. Would Jesus agree with that? Then why would I allow that space in my head? Or would Jesus say, 70 times 7 in a single day? It's like, for us, 4.9 times in a lifetime is too much. You know, because we're like, we, we get raised by sports. It's three strikes, you're out. Be honest, how many of us have ever thought that or said that about people? Yeah, you're not called to play baseball with people. You're called to live the life that Jesus called you into. Jesus said 490 times in the course of a day. And we would give ourselves permission if it was 49 times in a week. We, I, and you know what the crazy thing about it is? Is we would have so many well-intentioned, well-meaning Christian people who believe in the same Jesus that said 490 times that would come around us and would tell us, I mean, yeah, I mean, dude, come on. I can see, you know, I'm all about second chances, but... I mean, I believe in giving the benefit of the doubt, but... I mean, I know there's grace, but... And then we give each other these permissions to act in a way that completely violates what Jesus called us to. And because Sister So-and-so is a good Christian woman and she said it, certainly it must be true without even realizing that she's contradicting the spirit of truth who is Jesus and what He's called us to. It's not like, that's not a lofty suggestion for the super saints that someday we'll be in stained glass. That was the calling for every one of us who are following Jesus. Meditate on these things. How many of the things that we meditate in the course of a day could truly make it through that filter? And how much different would our thought process be and what we see be if we actually allowed that to be a filter that safeguarded our minds? I, I feel like this is so much better than you guys are responding. 
I can say that because it's not mine. So he, he starts going through, and he, he we, like I said, I'm not going to repeat everything. He says, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving and kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed by, like the eagle. And, and I just want to start there. We talked a little bit about that last, uh, the other week. But, but I think that if we understand that word and we actually believe that word, it, it's, a, it's a huge help to us. He says, who satisfies your years with good things. Your years. That means time that can be measured. So this is not talking about for eternity. He's going to satisfy my life with good things. Because he says years. So that means it's in time that can be measured, which means it's now. It's for here. It's for on earth. Be careful of a theology that promises that everything good is for a time that's past or a time that's coming. Because that is a theology that is totally disempowering and it's anti the gospel that Jesus came and preached and lived. And so David says, he satisfies your, your, your years with good things. Satis- that word satisfy there is the Greek word sabeo, which means fills to satisfaction. So he fills my years to satisfaction with good things, which means that it's a huge help to me because I can understand this. If something in my life isn't a good thing, one of two things is going on. Either I need perspective to see that it actually is a good thing because in the moment I can't see that it is, but time will tell me and show me that it was, or it's not from him. Those only one of two possibilities because it says he fills my lives with my life with good things. Every good and perfect gift comes to the Father who above who is within there's no shadow of turning. Right? That means he's never gonna change. The good things that come into our life are from him. So if it's not a good thing or it doesn't seem to be a good thing, then I need to do one of two things. I either need to reject it as not from God and and actually go to war against it. Or I need to pray and ask God to help me see that this really is a good thing and that one day I'll see the fruit of this. Like Dylan talked about last, the, last week, when someone goes into the threshing floor, when somebody is taken to a place where he's stripping away, Gideon de- probably doesn't think it's a good thing when God starts taking the men away from him when he's going into battle already underarmed. He probably didn't see that as a really good thing. If he had a little bit of perspective he'd be able to see that it actually was a good thing because God was going to accomplish with him and 300 men what he couldn't accomplish with him and 30,000 men. And that the testimony that would come from it would so empower people because there's absolutely no way that this could naturally happen. He wanted a story that would give all the glory and give all the credit to come to the one who actually was behind it, Yahweh, the God of, of Israel. And he wanted their enemies to fear. Why? Because he didn't want the story to be about how fierce the fighters were of the children of Israel. Because if 30,000 people take out 150,000 people, then they're a fierce fighting unit. And man, they can take on five guys at a time and you can kind of explain it. But when 300 people take out 150,000, there is no other explanation and there is no other way to explain it. Besides, they have a God on their side who is more powerful than the God that we have on our side. And he wanted it to empower the, the, Israel, the Israelites, but he also wanted it to strike fear in the hearts of their enemies. And so at the moment, it doesn't seem like a good thing. But how can Gideon know in the moment that it's a good thing? Because he hears the voice of the Father. Anytime I find myself in something that doesn't look good, I can ask myself, what got me here? 
Jesus in the wilderness doesn't look like a good thing when he's out there being tempted by the enemy for 40 days. Except for the fact that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness for that purpose. Gideon having his men stripped doesn't look like a good thing. Noah building a boat for rain for years when rain doesn't even exist and people have no idea what it is and he looks crazy to everybody doesn't seem to be a good thing but what got him there it was following the voice of the father it was following the leading of the spirit and so an important thing to ask myself when i find myself in a situation that doesn't look good from the outside is what got me here and be honest with myself what got me here was it my own ambition was it my own desire Was it a person? Was it greed? Or was it the voice of God? Because I only want to be in, a, in, in something that doesn't look good as if I know that He's called me into it because then I can stand on Psalm 23 and say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for Thou art with me. How does that verse start? The Lord is my shepherd. That means I'm following Him. So if His voice, the voice of the shepherd is what brought me into the valley, then I can stand on Psalm 23. But if I got there without Him, then I'd probably have to pray a different prayer and I might not want to keep standing there and I might want to think about actually changing direction and going a different way. Because if I find myself in a valley that I got myself into, I probably need to get out of the valley rather than keep on going. And the only way I can know the difference between the two is by being honest with myself and asking myself, what got me here? That's why you don't, like, like in life, like, you don't want to be anywhere that God hasn't called you to be. You don't want to do anything that God hasn't called you to do. Because if you get yourself in those situations when things get hard, what do you stand on? Because even if people around you think it was a God thing, you know why you got there and how you got there. And if you got there by your own cunning, by your own skill, by your own desire, by your own manipulating or politicking or any of those things, no matter how religious you dressed it up, no matter how much you made it look like to the world, it was the blessing of God that got there. In your heart, you'll know that you got you there. And if you got you there, then you have to keep you there. And because you know how you got there, you'll always know that there could be someone coming along who's better at the game that got you there than you are, and you'll be paranoid, and the whole time you'll look around thinking the next person might be coming for where you are rather than enjoying the fact that God placed you somewhere and that if somebody talented is coming along behind you, it's a blessing. He's not there to take you out. He's there to add to your life. The most secure people are people who say, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say the things I hear the Father say. Why? Because I'm only in the places that He's called me to be. And if He brought me there, then He's the person that will keep me there. See, but in my heart, I know. In your heart, you know. You know how you got there. It's not to say like, hey, you spend your whole life sitting around questioning yourself. It's just saying, be honest with yourself. And if you find that you actually, the things in your life are not there because they're voice of God, repent. It's not hard. What is it? Oh my gosh. I just realized I'm out here in the middle of this lake and you didn't call me to be here. 
sorry. Lord, I'll go back to the shore where you did call me and I'll wait there until you tell me what's next. Because I'm not going to keep fighting against this storm, paddling my boat, while the people around me say, well, you know, it must be God that called you to it, brother, because the storm's coming against it. And anytime God calls you to something, the devil's going to try to stop it. Sometimes, but sometimes you're in a storm because you're somewhere God never called you to be and he's not in the boat with you to calm the storm. I mean that figuratively. He's always with us. And never leave you, never forsake you. But sometimes it's hard because you're not walking in what he's called you to walk in. Sometimes it's hard because you're doing things that he's never called you to do. Sometimes it's hard because you stepped out and did something that he didn't ask you to do. And now you're thinking, well, if he did it with Gideon, he'll do it with me. Maybe, if he calls you to it. That's why Peter didn't say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come and start stepping. He waited for a second. Why? Because I need to hear his voice so that I have the faith required to actually take a step. Just like Jonathan, let us go up there, for God is able to deliver by many or by few. And if they say this, then we'll know God is with us. But if they say that, then we'll know that he's not given them into our hands. What's Jonathan saying? I'm going to step out and do something here, but I'm also going to make sure that I hear his voice so that I know that it's something that he's called me to. I'm going to give myself a plumb line to know, is this something, God, that you're doing, or is this just something I want to do on my own? And I'll actually listen, and what you say is what I'll do. And I'm not going to try to dress it up in religious language and make it, well, I felt like the Father was saying. Are you sure? Be careful when you throw that term out, well, God said. Be careful, because that's a conversation ender among friends a lot of times, because now you've put me in the position where all I can do is tell you you didn't hear God or agree with you. And what if I think the answer is somewhere in between? You know, just be real careful. I don't, I don't, someone needs to hear this. Be real careful. It, 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 I know it can sound like semantics, but it's not. Be careful like Paul said. When Paul was speaking from his own, he said, you know, I, I feel like the Spirit has showed me this. When Paul's speaking by God, he said, listen to me, this is what the Lord said. And be real careful that we differentiate between the two. Because saying, I feel like this is what the Spirit is saying, leaves it open for me to say, that, that could be true, but, but, but I've been, I, I feel like, you know, maybe have you thought about this? Have you looked into that? It leaves room for conversation that doesn't involve me saying that you don't hear God and, and totally contradicting what you've just spoke. No, whoever needed to hear that, just make an extra offering over there on your way out. Because that wasn't included in the original message, so your tithe didn't cover that. See, sometimes we accept or blame things on God that aren't, which makes it really hard to believe Him for rescue when we believe He's the one who's doing it. Sometimes we believe that God's the person doing these things. And so if He's the one who's causing this, then how do I go to Him and in His authority ask Him to make it stop? How do I believe that he can come and rescue me if I believe he's the one who put me in the position to begin with? That's all I have to know. All right, so in, in, in verse 6, he continues on. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He's, he's making this statement because he wants himself to remember something about the Father. He's saying, listen, the Lord performs righteous deeds for all who are oppressed. Guess who David's included in? All. 
So when he makes a general statement about who God is for everyone, he's also including himself in that, and he's reminding himself of who God is and who God wants to be for his people. He says, the Lord performs righteous judgments. That word performs there is asa, which means make. Like when it says that the Lord saw all that he had made, he saw that it was good. Or when it said that he made for them a covering of animal skin, it's that same word. So it says the Lord makes or creates righteous deeds. And that word um, um, uh, righteous means to make right or to totally restore. So what's he saying? He's saying, if I'm in a position where I'm being oppressed, now David's the one who said, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. So he's the one who understands. He already knows that. If I'm following after him, listen, I've done nothing wrong in this. I was innocently watching sheep. I was called to a house. I was anointed by a prophet. I, was, I had a, 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 a promise spoken over my life. I was anointed to be a king, to be a leader. And none of this was anything that I went after. None of this was anything I tried to make happen. It was simply by God choosing me and me walking in obedience. And I've been obedient ever since. Every time I've had a chance to kill Saul, I haven't because I've made a pact with his son Jonathan who said that I will not touch your family, you won't touch mine. In fact, I will go after anybody that tries to harm your family. And so he knows this. He, every time he has an opportunity, instead of taking the easy way out, instead of getting on the throne before it's time by ending Saul's life, he actually chooses to take the high road and says, I'm not going to touch him. I'm going to allow God to put me on the throne. I'm not going to get myself there with a sword because if I live by that sword, I'll die by that same sword. So he understands where I am is not because of my own fault. It's not because of my sin. So Peter's talking about, he says, you know, count it all joy when you, when you are persecuted for his name's sake, but be sure that none of you suffers as an evildoer, as a result of sin. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you can't just live your life willfully sinning, and then when consequences come your way, go, wow, I'm being persecuted for your name, God. This is such an honor. No, it's not. It's the consequence of sin. It has to be because Peter says, make sure that when you're being persecuted, when you face hard times, when things are coming into your life and coming against you, that it's because you're actually following Jesus and being persecuted because you look like him, not as a consequence for living in sin. And so David understands that. So he's saying to himself, listen, God is going to make things right and do things on my behalf. It says, and, he, and judgments for all who are oppressed. That word judgment there means a verdict or a formal decree which involves the sentencing, but also the declaration of the privilege or the punishment as a result. What's he saying? I'm not going to go out there and defend myself. I'm not going to go out there and plead my case. I'm not going to go out there and make demands. I'm not going to stand in front of them and say, you should be kneeling before me because he's anointed me king. I'm going to trust that you, God, will make a righteous judgment on my behalf and that you will see and judge rightly, and I'm going to entrust myself into your hands rather than taking this into mine. It's crazy how many things that David declared Jesus actually lived out as an example. 1 Peter 2.21 For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin. Why does it point out he committed no sin? Because he's wanting us to know what was happening to Jesus wasn't because of sin. Because sometimes there's things in our lives that are consequence of sin. And so Peter's wanting again to just make sure that we realize who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth and while being reviled. In other words, he absolutely did not deserve it for any reason. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. David declared it. Jesus lived it and then left us an example that said, follow me. You don't have to defend yourself and prove yourself to people. You just have to be obedient and do what he's called you to do and trust yourself into the hands of the one who judges rightly. This is what David's saying. He's reminding himself, because I promise you there were probably times where David thought, you know what, I'm done with this. Like, trust me. You've had those thoughts. David had those thoughts. I've had those thoughts. We've all had those thoughts where it's like, okay, I tried the love thing. And just because a thought comes doesn't mean it's you. It doesn't mean it's who you are. It doesn't mean you have to own it, claim it, live it out. It just means the temptation to do that is there. The temptation, Jesus was tempted in every way which is common to man, yet without sin. In other words, it's not a sin for you to be tempted. It's a sin for you to actually act on the temptation. And so the temptation was there, I'm sure, for David many times to say, you know what, I am done with this. I have tried the whole just serving God, just being obedient, just trusting Him, and all it has got me is the wife of my youth has been given to another man. The brother who I have made covenant with, I can't even see because his father wants to kill me. They have chased me. They have hunted me. They have slandered me. They've told lies about me. I almost had my life taken so many times. I go in and play the guitar for the guy because I love him. I don't have to go into his castle and play guitar. I choose to go into his castle and I play my guitar and I sing and it calms him and it makes him feel better and then he tries to pin me to a wall with a spear. I'm done. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to settle this thing. If the people who are chasing me knew that I've been anointed king, they probably wouldn't be chasing me the way that they are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get Samuel and I'm going to get him to tell everybody who I am. Because the Bible says not to sing your own praises but have another man do it. He doesn't do it though. What does he say? He says, God, remember this is all part of him remembering who God is and who God will be. He says, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust that you will judge rightly and that you will perform on my behalf because I'm being oppressed. Then Jesus comes along. That's, That's why David had such amazing insight because so many things that you see David declare, you see Jesus live out. And he had an inferior covenant. He had an inferior covenant and he was not filled with the Holy Spirit. He could only have the Holy Spirit rest upon him. That's why he would pray, take not your spirit from me. Why? Because the spirit could leave. Because he wasn't born again and filled with the spirit. He simply had the spirit of God resting upon him. He would have loved to have had the indwelling Holy Spirit living inside of him the way you and I do. And yet so many things that he declared Jesus actually lived. He says, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. And I think this is David reminding himself in this moment and declaring to us, I'm a friend of God's. I have relationship with him. I'm not out here just wandering around like a pinball being bounced to and fro and saying, well, you know, God's just a mystery. We'll never figure him out. We can't ever understand it. 
He said, to Moses you made known your ways, to Israel. Or, he made his, known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. What's he saying? Everybody sees what God does, but not many people get to know why he did it. But what's he telling himself? He's saying, listen, you know God. David, remember that you know him. And you know that if he has not made a way for you to sit on that throne yet, then it's not time for you to sit on the throne. Quit trying to get to something before he makes the way for you. Because you're not out here being bounced around. David wasn't bounced around just going, well, I guess one day maybe it'll happen. He's going, listen, if I'm not on the throne yet, it's because I'm not ready for the throne. Not because God is in heaven arbitrarily saying, well, I don't know, maybe tomorrow. If something that God has spoke over your life has not come to pass, and you know Him, and you know what He's spoke over you, and you have relationship with Him, then you can know and believe. You know what? If the reason it hasn't come to pass yet is because I'm not ready for it, and you're preparing me for it because you don't want the very thing that's supposed to be a blessing to be a curse. Because you don't want to put something on my shoulders that I haven't, you haven't prepared my shoulders to receive. And because there's a day coming where I'll see the wisdom in the fact that you haven't given me the things that I'm asking for yet. Not because you don't want to give them to me, but because you want to give them to me when the time is right so that I can actually steward them wisely. So David's reminding himself of that. This is what Jesus was talking about. There's just so much in this you can see in the life of Jesus. In John 15, 15, he says, No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Jesus was saying the same thing. Listen, there was a time when you guys were just slaves. You did what you did because you were afraid of what would happen if you didn't. Think about the children of Israel. God calls them to the mountain. What does he want? He wants relationship with all of his children. He says, gather the children to the mountain and bring them to me and I'm going to speak to them. Yet the people, because they don't know God the way that Israel, the way that Moses does, they don't want to go. And they're terrified and they say, no Moses, you go talk to him. If we go over there and talk to him, we're going to die. So Moses goes, climbs the mountain. Moses knows God. Why? Because he steps into what God calls him to. He's obedient. God said, come to the mountain. Moses is like, listen, if all of you guys aren't going to go, okay, I can't force you, but I'm going to go up the mountain. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's good. You go. And you bring back to us. Setting up this priestly thing that God never intended from the beginning where a man had to go and get from God and bring back to the rest of the common people. That was never his desire from the beginning. He wanted to speak to all of them. But they chose not to and chose to send a man. That's why Jesus came. And once, rather than God being up on the mountain, when Jesus got transfigured, remember when Jesus went up the mountain, what did he do? He took three men with him. What was he saying? The time for one man to go up the mountain and get everything for everybody and bring God back down is over. And when I go up to the mountain, I'm bringing you with me. Why? So that nobody would ever again think that it's only Jesus who could go up or only the select few. They would see anybody who is pursuing Jesus and has relationship with him can ascend the mountain with him. You know what's amazing about that? You guys want to hear a little side note? I was reading through that and when it talks about, it says that they go up there and, and they see Jesus transfigured and they see Elijah and they see Moses and it says, and Peter became fearful and he said, it's good for us to be here, Lord. We should build three tabernacles. It says, for he was fearful. Why was he afraid? Because the presence of God was there and he didn't know what to do. And so he said something. Why? Because when the presence of God is, is really strong, a lot of times we get fearful because we don't know what to do and we feel like we have to do something. 
And so Peter opens his mouth and begins to speak. And what does God say? This is my son. Hear him. What's he saying? Right now is not the time for talking, Peter. You're not up here so that you can tell me what you should do. You're here to experience what I want you to experience and to hear from the one that I've called you to hear from. And it says, and they dropped their faces down. They were terrified. And when they looked up, all they could see was Jesus. What is that showing us? It's showing us two things. One, when you get in the presence of God and the presence of God is really strong, like that wasn't an everyday occurrence. They didn't see Jesus transfigured every single day. It's not going to be an everyday occurrence that you're in your room praying and you just feel the presence of God so strongly like you do other times. It doesn't mean he's more or less there. It just means there's times where he does that and there's no explaining it and you can't recreate it or make it happen. But when it happens, enjoy it for what it is and don't feel like you have to do something. The second thing, they see Moses, they see Elijah, they see the law and the prophets. The law was to show them their need for a Savior. The prophets were to proclaim to them who the Savior was. All of it was to lead them to a place where all they saw was Jesus. So they go up there, they see the law, they see the prophets, they see Jesus. When they put their heads down, and when they hear the voice of the Father, and He says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him and they look back up everything else has gone and all they see is jesus everything in your life is to bring you to a place where all you see is him prophecy is awesome but it should lead you to a place where all you see is jesus every bit of it that's why he brought them up there that's why they saw the law that's why they saw the prophets And when their heads went down and came back up, it says, and all they saw was Jesus. God, you bring us to a place where we can have the law, knowledge of who we were. We can have prophecy, knowledge of who you are. We can have people speaking into our lives. We can have all that stuff. But at the end of the day, all of it brings us to a place where all we see is him. And I think that's the reason why they saw those two specifically. So David's reminding himself, I know you. And then, he, then he goes on now. He says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Here, David is reminding himself, because sometimes our, 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 uh, the, the way that we think goes the other way. You know, if we're not careful... We'll, we'll, we'll be living, you know, and doing things that we know we shouldn't do, living in disobedience and suffering consequence for that, and then blaming that on being persecuted because our lives look like Jesus, and not actually understanding that's a consequence for sin, or we can get in the other ditch sometimes, where we think, well, God must be punishing me for something that I did wrong. And so David covers both of these bases for us in this prayer and covers it for himself so that his heart doesn't wander from one place to the next, but it's actually fixed in the middle. First he says, listen, God is doing good things, and, and if I see something in my life that's not a good thing, then it's obviously not from him unless it's something that's coming as a result of sin. But here he says, the Lord, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. What's David saying? This stuff that's happening to me, God, is not your fault, and I'm not going to blame you for it, and I'm not going to put you on trial and go on a witch hunt and try to figure out what I've done wrong that's making you do this to me. The consequence of sin is a natural reaction because of the laws set forth on the earth. It is not God punishing you because he's not dealt with you according to your iniquities. 
for God to punish you now for your sin would mean that there was something that Jesus didn't take punishment for when he was on the cross. People say things like, well, you know, if God doesn't rain rain down fire on, you know, pick a city, an evil city, then he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. If God were to rain down fire on a city, now he would have to apologize to Jesus because it would mean there was something that Jesus didn't pay the price for. That there's something left. When Jesus said, now is the time for judgment on the earth, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all to myself, he didn't say all men. That word is put into the translation at some point by men, and that word is not in the original language. The original language says, now is the time for judgment on the earth, and if I be lifted up. He said this to signify the way in which he would die. That's in the Bible. That's the original text. I will draw all to myself. What's he saying? Now is the time for the judgment of sin upon the earth. And if they lift me up on a cross and I die that way, if they're foolish enough to crucify me, every bit of judgment will be drawn to me. And because that verse, that word men's been put in there, we've misquoted that. And people say, well, the Bible says we just lift up Jesus and he'll draw all men to himself. That's not what he was saying at all because we know very clearly that at the end he's going to say to some, I never knew you. That's added in there and it changes the context and it changes what it actually means. He said, now is the time for judgment on the earth and if I be lifted up, I'll draw it all to myself. What's David saying? David in the old covenant has a new covenant understanding that God has not dealt with us according to our iniquities nor is he punishing us for our sins. When we allow thoughts that God is dealing with me according to my sin. Listen, it's, this is the word of God. This is not like some theology of Roy that was made up so that you would feel better or some greasy, slippery, you know, go do what you want, God doesn't care message. The standard of grace is way higher than the standard of the law. You you know, but if you say that, people will feel like that's permission to sin. People feel like they have permission to sin. If they didn't, they wouldn't do it. What I'm saying is, is that according to the Word of God, he says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. When we allow thoughts in our lives that say, I deserve this because I did X, we are stuck in that place because we feel like the very thing that we actually should be believing God for rescue from is the work of the Father Himself. And how on earth do I go and pray to a God that I believe is the one who's smiting me and putting me back into the pit? Don't allow the thought into your mindset of, well, God's doing this to me because I. He says he has not dealt with you according to our iniquities, nor has he rewarded us according to our sin. And in this is a great reminder for us. Now, I'm, I'm going to close up with this and maybe we'll get to the rest as we have time. But if God doesn't deal with us according to our sins and doesn't reward us according to our iniquities, then we probably owe it to others to do the same. The amazing thing about a lot of these verses is that while they are a description of the character and nature of God, they're also a description of the character and nature of God that's inside of us and the way that we're supposed to respond. And when he said, he has not dealt with us according to our iniquities nor rewarded us based on our sin, what is he saying? I'm not going to deal with people based on their iniquity and I'm not going to reward them based on their sin. Why? Because in a little bit, he's going to say, a little bit later, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from him. So when God forgives us, not only does he forgive us, 
but he actually forgets about it and it's gone as if it never happened. Lost in the sea of forgetfulness. That's in your Bible. And he's never bringing that back up and he's not dealing with you according to that. And and when, when we're called to forgive people, we're called to forgive them in the same way. And some people say, well, yeah, but that's God. You know, he can forget about things because if he says I forget, then he forgets. I'm human. I always remember, A, it is never the Spirit of God that is bringing up a sin that you've forgiven back to your mind, ever. Why? Because he said when he forgives it, it's gone as far as the east is from the west. The Holy Spirit is never bringing up people's sin to you. It is always the enemy. And if it's the enemy bringing up their sin, then that means the action and the thoughts that that leads to are the plan of the enemy, not the plan of God. So how do we forget as human beings? This is how. We say, just like David started this with saying, bless the Lord, we say this, I choose that from this day forward, I will never treat you, see you, or relate to you based on the thing that you've done wrong that I've forgiven you for. Because I'm choosing to be like the Father. That means when you come to me, and you know what the truth of the matter is? Even if you don't. Because we don't owe it to people to forgive them as long as they know what they did was wrong and they come to us and ask us for forgiveness. We owe it to people to forgive them because our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. They may never see that what they did was wrong, but if you always see what they did was wrong and you can't see past that, you'll never treat them the way the Father wants you to treat them and they may never see the love of the Father through your life. And you'll be another voice of condemnation. The enemy's really good at that. He doesn't need our help. There's one voice we're called to echo and it's the voice of the Father, which was this. What was Jesus saying? Father, forgive them. Why? Because they came and asked me to forgive No, not because they came and asked me to forgive them, but because they don't even know what they're doing is wrong. What's the example that Jesus is giving us? The example he's giving us is this. It doesn't matter if people ever come to you and say, you know what, I was completely, totally wrong. I need you to forgive me. We can actually be more like the Father when we look out at them before they even acknowledge what they did was wrong, if they ever do, and say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then once I've forgiven them, then I owe it to them to respond to them the way the Father responds to me when He's forgiven me. And what is that? I will not deal with them according to their iniquity, nor will I reward them according to their sin. For the rest of their life, I will choose when I see them to not see them, not treat them, and not respond to them based on the things they've done wrong. But I will choose to see them, respond to them, and relate to them because I see who the Father created them to be, even if they don't. That's a pretty high standard. Can I tell you though, it's the most amazing way to live? Because now you're actually loved because love keeps no record of wrongs. Who is love? It's not a trick question. (laughs) So if love keeps no record of wrongs, what does that mean? It means he's not keeping a record of wrongs. Why? Because he doesn't want to relate to us according to our sin, nor reward us based on our iniquity. He actually wants to relate to us according to who he created us to be. It's why sin didn't separate him in the garden. It's why he used to come and walk and talk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Then Adam and Eve sin, and what does God do? He comes and walks and talks with them in the cool of the day. Why? 
because sin didn't change God, it changed the way we perceived Him. That's why He made a covering for them of His own hands. What was He saying to them by doing that? He was saying, listen to me. If the covering you made with your own hands was good enough, you wouldn't have been hiding behind a tree. Take the fig leaves off and let me put a covering on you so that you'll feel confident to come into my presence because you'll know that it's good enough because I'm the one that made it. What does he do with Jesus? He says, if the blood of bulls and goats was good enough that it would allow you to come guilt-free into my presence, then I would have let that stand, but it won't. So instead of you having a sacrifice you made with your hands, let me make a sacrifice with my hands and cover you with that so that you will know for eternity that you can come into my presence because the sacrifice is good enough because it wasn't made with your hands, it was made with mine. That's the gospel. That's good news. That's the beauty of the God we serve. If we ever find ourselves in a place like David where we look around and everything looks wrong, all we have to do is remind ourselves of all He's done, all He's promised, and all He's called us to be. Suddenly, you start to meditate on good things. Now, rather than seeing the people that persecute you as the problem, you see them as the prize. And maybe I'm in their life because God intended that when they ridiculed me, I would respond with kindness. And that would destroy an idea that they had. And it would absolutely infuriate the spirit that's upon them. Because He's called me to be a soft answer that turns away wrath. Maybe when people treat me unfairly, rather than putting up and fighting and demanding that I be treated fairly and demanding that they know who I am and that they better see me for who I am and they better understand what God's put on my life and don't they know, rather than doing that, maybe I entrust myself to the one who judges rightly and trust that he will perform righteous deeds on my behalf. Because even if people don't see who I am, he's never lost sight of who I am. And if I would entrust myself to him and I would humble myself in time, he will exalt me. We can't just take one half of that verse. It's destructive. Anytime you take a half of a verse, it can always be really, really, really bad. Like, you know, in this life, you will have trials. Go around quoting that, you know, only half of the verse. But take heart, for I've overcome the world. In this world, you'll have trials. Yes, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. What's he saying? You're in me, so you've overcome the trials that you're going to face in this world. You just have to remember that when you face them so you're not freaked out thinking that this is something that hasn't been defeated yet. You know, God says, humble ourselves. And yeah, what does it say? And He will lift you up. He will exalt you. It's okay to believe that God wants to exalt you. If you think your whole life is just humbling yourself and humbling yourself and humbling yourself and you never see the exalted part, then that means His Word is a liar and it's not true and He hasn't performed that which He said He would. But don't humble yourself so that He will humble yourself because you believe that you really deserve nothing less than judgment, nothing less than for to be separated from Him, but that God in His grace actually made a way and called me into what He created me for. And because of that, I can believe that He'll actually exalt me and it'll be okay and I won't be one of these people that falls flat on my face and is an embarrassment to the Gospel because I didn't climb the ladder to get there. I humbled myself. He lifted me up. God, I just thank You for Your Word. I thank You that, that, that there's just so much truth. And I thank You that You've hidden it and it's your great pleasure to hide it, God, but it's our great pleasure to seek it out. And I just thank you for revelation. I thank you, God, that when we find ourselves in a position where when we look around, everything looks bad, we remember that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. 
God, that we begin to remind ourselves of the truth that you've spoken over our lives and about us. That we begin to find our, our worth and our value in who you say that we are and who you've called us to be. And, and I, I, I don't, I don't want to move on real quick because everything we've been talking about today is only true for people who are actually born again, part of this family. Those are who the promises are for. It's true for everybody, but the access point in is to become born again a new creation in Christ. And if there's anyone here who's never actually been born again, and I'm not saying just said a prayer, I mean actually been born again where you've given your old life up and asked Jesus to come in and make all things new and be filled with His Spirit and actually become a new creation, something that never before existed and now does. If you've never done that, this is not like a one-time raise my hand, punch a card, go back to life. It's the first step in a journey of walking with Him, but it starts with a step of saying, I need a Savior. I need that. I don't have that and I want it. So nobody looking around because sometimes people care more about what people think than what their heart's saying. It's just the truth. If, if you feel that way and you feel like, you know what, I would like today to actually surrender over this life that I've lived so that I can receive the life that He died for me to have. If you want to do that, you can do that today and you can step into everything that's promised by the blood of Jesus. If you want to do that, just put your hand up right now so I can see it and then we're just going to pray a simple prayer. Is there anybody that wants to do that today? Awesome. So everything I've just been saying is true for every single person in this room. So Father, I just bless each person in this place with the knowledge of who you are. God, I pray that you would expand our idea of who you are, God, that we would no longer see you as a sterile, uncaring, unattached, cold, old man in the sky with a lightning bolt in one hand ready to strike down the second we step out of line. God, that we would see you as the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. That when we read our Bible and we see who you are, that you become that to us. That it's not just a story we tell our kids, but it's actually a story we tell ourselves. Now, thank you that we expect you to be who you've always been in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.